I'll invite you to now stand with me as we read the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We stand because we believe this is the word of God. We honor it as such. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time of worship this morning through song and prayer and scripture reading, traditional things like lighting a candle of Advent. We are reminded of why we gather, to bring glory to our God and to exalt his son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you, God, for this season that we are now entering into where we are thoughtful and reflect upon the first coming of Jesus and that he will one day return. And in the meantime, you have left us here with clear purpose and mission to make disciples. So would we do that? Would we consider how this passage of Scripture helps us to do that all the more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Church family, this morning's sermon is entitled, Call to Prayer. As Paul finishes, comes to the concluding section of his final uh, letter here to this church, he is going to invite them to pray for him. Before we see how Paul is going to invite him to pray, I would like us to think for a moment about prayer in our own midst and how we together pray as a congregation because we're going to end in this same thought that, that we must be a congregation that earnestly prays for one another and earnestly prays for the mission of God. So I thought it would be helpful to begin the sermon by by doing a, a little bit of a well check of our church. I believe we pray. It's, it's, it's important to us at a church, as a church. I believe, uh, we, uh, pray often together congregationally. If you, if, whether this is your first time to be here with us, uh, or you've been coming to this church for years, you've probably already noticed we pray as a part of our services. I believe we've already prayed three times this morning. There'll be, uh, another prayer at the end from one of our elders. Our small groups are dedicated to praying for one another. I imagine that if you've already gone to small group this morning, or maybe you will at 11 o'clock or at some other point in one of our off-campus groups uh, throughout the week, you, one of the first things you'll likely do as a small group is take prayer requests and see how you can pray for each other. Our church publishes a bi-monthly prayer guide. It's several pages. All of our ministries in our church submit prayer requests, and it gives you an opportunity, uh, both as individuals and families and small groups, to pray for what's happening in the ministries of our church, even ministries maybe you're not a part of. But as I sat on this 
passage this week in preparation for this sermon, I still asked this question. Do we really value prayer? You know, prayer is one of the six core values of our church. One of our core values is that we value worship and prayer and how it connects us to God. Do we really mean it when we say that we value prayer? Is is prayer really an essential component in our lives? Is it really an essential component in our church? Let's ask the question this way. If all of us stopped praying for our church, would we notice? Would our ministries be different? Would our effect in our community be different? Would our gatherings be different? I hope it would. But it's that idea I want us to, I want to sit on our shoulders this morning as we see this call to prayer in scripture. I want to call our congregation to a greater level of prayer. To where we would emphatically answer that question. If we were all to stop praying, we should hope that everything would fall apart. Because we are that reliant on what God alone can do through this body of believers. Let us be a people who pray fervently, energetically, often, and not only for our own needs, but for the vast needs of our congregation and for the ministries that we seek to undertake in our community and around the world so that God may be honored and that his mission may go forth. And it is that mission that Paul invites this church to pray alongside of him for. Praying for one another. In the mission is where Paul begins. He invites them by saying, finally, brothers, this is again as a corporate word Paul's used throughout these letters and he uses throughout all of them, talking about the congregation, brothers and sisters, church family, he says, pray for us. Paul doesn't say, send us money. He doesn't say, figure out a way that you can help us. He says, finally, brothers, finally, congregation, pray for us. This final section of 2 Thessalonians is an invitation to pray, to join in the mission. Most of this church, of of the church in Thessalonica, would never leave that city. That was the way of the ancient people. People in that time rarely traveled more than about 40 or 50 miles in their entire life away from the place that they were born. And while Thessalonica was a fairly metro area and would have had people who did travel from one place to another, and travel was becoming more and more common as, as Rome connected the world, people like Paul traveled on three different continents. But here... Most of the people he's writing to would never leave this city. And he doesn't say, come and join us wherever it is he is writing this second letter from. He says, you can join us not in person, but in prayer. And notice how he says to pray for them. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as has happened among you. 
So there's two specific prayer requests that Paul gives for the mission. Now, there are going to be other things we're going to see about prayer here, but specifically thinking about God's mission for his church to make disciples, there are two prayers for the word of God. First is that it would speed ahead. Paul's desire is that God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for many, would speed ahead. Paul is echoing what we read in the 147th Psalm where the psalmist write, he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. This is Paul's desire for the word of God. And in truth, it is what the word of God has promised the word of God will do. That it will run swiftly, that it will speed ahead. Now you may ask this question, why would Paul invite this church to pray this prayer with them if God has already promised in the Psalms that this is what the word of God does? Well, that teaches us something about how we pray. Can I just help you in your prayer life? Because maybe you get frustrated in your prayer life. You don't know what to pray for. You don't really know how to pray. A few years ago, we did a prayer conference here. We brought in a professor from one of our uh, Southern Baptist seminaries uh, who had written a book on praying the Bible. And he spent two days here at our church talking about this very subject. How do you pray the Bible? And you say, well, why would I pray the Bible? Isn't the Bible true? Yes. So why wouldn't you pray if you, if you wonder what in the world you should pray for and you don't know what to say or how to say it, why don't I just open your Bible and pray for what's already promised that God would, promised by God that He would do. This is what Paul invites the Thessalonian church to do alongside of Him, is to pray that God's Word would run swiftly. Now, we view the New Testament from, from, you know, a, a very long distance in this, this lens looking back upon it. But imagine with me, if you will, in just this, what is now Paul's second missionary journey where he's gone to, uh, Thessalonica, where he's now some months, uh, later writing back to them these, these two different letters. And he's in the midst of going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel. And what started in this little small group of people in Jerusalem has now spread through much of the Roman world. And there are now churches already a couple of decades later established in these places, so much so that the apostles are starting to now write back to them and send messages to them and figure out how to disciple them. The word of God ran swiftly. It sped ahead. And what Paul says is, would that, would you pray that that would continue to be the case? We should pray that this is what God's word would do, that it would speed ahead. But there's a second invitation to praying for the mission, and that is that the word of God would be honored. That people would hear it. This is what Paul is saying when he says the word would be honored. That people would hear it and believe it. Because not everyone does. Not everyone hears the word of God and believes that it is the truth unto salvation and puts their faith in Jesus who is proclaimed from the beginning of scripture to the end. The Bible actually tells us that there will be people who will reject it. And one of those places is in another letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul poses a question to that church. He says, who is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's saying that people often are going to think that the message of the gospel is foolishness. Because they're in their own wisdom, they think they can please God on their own. But they are in, completely incapable of doing it. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says that we are incapable of pleasing God on our own. And only through faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place can we be made right with God. And there are people in that day, just as there are people in this day, that thinks that's utter nonsense. That it's foolishness. That it's a ridiculous idea. So what's the difference? What takes someone from thinking that this is wrong to thinking this is right? It's the power of God that changes hearts. That God is the one that makes people wise unto salvation. So this is Paul's invitation to pray. He prays that the word of God would run swiftly, that it would make it to a lot of places, and that as the word of God makes it to those places, that people would hear it and believe it. So let me ask this question. Do we pray in that way? I recognize that, that this is a church that goes. I, one of the things that, that when other people ask me, like, well, tell me about your church. I'm like, this is a church that believes in the mission of God. This is a church that believes in proclaiming the gospel both locally and, and in our state and in our nation and even around the world. We take serious God's command to go with the gospel. We celebrate that every year in our praise and go uh, Sunday. We we take up an offering throughout the year as we think about uh, how we can send more and more mission teams and support our missionaries around the world. These are important things to our church. But how often are we praying for them? This is a great day for us to think about that because today starts a week of prayer. There's information at the information desk uh, and maybe on the back tables, I believe, if you'd like to pick one of these up as you go. But we join in with 47,000 other Southern Baptist churches this week praying for our missionaries because we take up an offering every Christmas called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. It's an international missions offering that fully funds our missionaries around the world, including missionaries sent from our church who live in sub-Saharan Africa. And so often we think, well, if I just put, you know, a few dollars, maybe even a few hundred dollars in the offering plate for, for Lottie Moon, and that funds the missionaries that I've done my part. No, here's what we should do. We should be on our knees daily before the Lord saying, God, would you make their words run swiftly into these places who have never heard the truth of the gospel? And as they proclaim these things in places that I will never go, will you cause men and women and boys and girls to believe the truth of that message and be saved? Oh, church, let's not just think that the send and the go in our pray, send, go are the most important parts. Without prayer, our sending and our going is meaningless. Let us be a church that fervently prays for the mission of God. 
And notice what he says in verse 2. This is still with mission in mind. He says, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul invites this church to pray for something that I am often, and maybe even publicly, vocally so at some point, that I am often a little bit leery of people pray. So Paul invites them to pray for this. And so it's obviously not wrong to pray for it. I just think we have our priorities backwards, which is why sometimes I'm leery of it. Paul asks that they would pray for his protection. You notice that's what he's asking for here. So this is in the context of mission. They're going into these cities that are unknown. That they don't know the gospel. They're going, they're praying. They're, he's asking, pray for us as we bring the gospel to these places. Pray that the gospel will be honored. Pray that people would believe. And pray that we're protected from wicked and evil men. Like they experienced there in, in Thessalonica. There were wicked and evil people in that city that ran Paul and his mission team off just as the church was getting to go. So these people have context for what that means. This is a church still under persecution. And Paul prays that they would be, his mission team, would be delivered from that Wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, right? So there are some who are going to think the gospel is foolish, and not only think the gospel is foolish, but they're going to outright oppose the spread of the gospel and seek to persecute the missionaries. And so Paul invites them to pray for their protection. So yes, it is beneficial to pray for the protection of those who spread the gospel. As we pray for our missionaries around the world, as we pray for our teams that we send to places, we should pray for their protection, But notice that this is a secondary concern for Paul. He doesn't mention this first. He doesn't say, brothers and sisters, I invite you to pray for our protection uh, above everything else. No, what's Paul's primary concern? That the gospel go forth. And as the gospel goes forth, we would also ask God that as long as it is his desire and his will for us to continue to spread the gospel, that he would protect us from evil people who would seek to do us harm. That's the invitation. So absolutely pray for our missionaries. Pray for their protection, the ones that you know by name who are from our church, those who are nameless around the world spreading the gospel. We absolutely want to pray for their protection, but not at all costs. Listen, these are people who have gone knowing that it may cost them their lives. And here's what I can promise you. They are okay with that. We should be okay with that too. (laughs) We should pray for their protection, but not at the cost of sharing the gospel. Because they have gone recognizing that spreading the gospel very well may cost them their lives. Paul ends up at that point. The gospel cost Paul his life. But he's still an invitation to pray. So we pray for one another in the mission. Number two, we pray for one another in confidence. Look at verses three and four. He writes here, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So this is still in this section that Paul is inviting them to to pray and But Paul is now turning the attention away from his mission team and turning it towards this church. And Paul's th- writing to them about the mindset that he has for them. How does he think about them? Well, as he thinks about them, he first thinks about the Lord and that the Lord is faithful. This is an expression that Paul has already used in his previous letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at the end of that book, he, he tells them, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. 
And here in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says something very similar. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. So as we think about praying for one another, as we think about being a praying congregation, we're praying for our missionaries, we're praying for our church leaders, we're praying for our small group, we're praying for the families in our churches. We're thinking about this. We need to be people who pray in confidence. The kind of confidence that Paul has, not in confidence in our own ability. You notice that's not what is expressed here. The expression isn't, oh, I know you people are really talented. I know you're really passionate. I know you can do, you know, whatever you set your mind to, you're going to be able to do. All of these common like self-help, self-esteem expressions that have developed in our culture, right? Paul doesn't lean on any of that idea. What does he lean on? The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. So as we pray for one another, as we pray for our congregation and the work of our congregation, we should be praying in faith, not in that we can do anything, but that the Lord would be the one who is faithful. That the Lord would be the one who would establish the work of his church. That the Lord would be the one to do it, as he said in that previous letter to this church, he will surely do it. Listen, the Lord doesn't leave us on our own to accomplish anything. He is the one who gives us his Holy Spirit. He is the one who directs us together congregationally to accomplish things far beyond ourselves. He is the one who will do it. So we should pray to that end. We should pray in faith as if God has already done what he has promised he will do. Because a promise from the Lord can be taken to the bank. He is the one who will establish his church. He is the one who is faithful. And notice what else he will do. He will guard you against the evil one. So just as Paul has invited prayer for his mission team, for safety against evil men, he now has faith. He's expressing his faith and the confidence that he has in God, that God will be the one who will establish and guard the church against the evil one. And he says in verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So notice his, notice where his, his faith lies. His faith lies fully in the Lord, that the Lord is going to be the one who is faithful and who will establish and will guard and will bring about sanctification, the the work of the Holy Spirit in obedience in these believers. As I was thinking about these verses this week, I think it's, you read this and you read this a, a few times. For me, it was almost impossible not to think about the prayer that Jesus prays when teaching his disciples to pray. The disciples of Jesus come to him and say, we want you to teach us how to pray. And so Jesus does. This is a very familiar passage to to many. He says, pray then like this. This is in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you notice the parallels here? God, the Father, is the focus of Jesus Christ, his son's prayer. Is he seeking to teach his disciples how to pray? He says, you're praying to God and it is his will that will be done. 
This is another reason we should pray the Bible. The Bible tells us the specific will of God. And so we should pray it as if we desire it to be done because it will be done. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray the will of God. Paul is teaching this church to have faith that God is the one who will establish them, that God is the one who will be faithful. Then he also prays for protection. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Paul expresses this same confidence in God's faithfulness to the church there uh, in, in Thessalonica by saying, would, would God protect you? I believe God will establish you and protect you from the evil one. That this is what God does. So we pray with this same level of confidence, trusting that it is God who is faithful. And that he will bring about his will in our lives. Number three, praying for one another in sanctification. It says in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In verse four, Paul has already introduced this idea of sanctification when he says that you are doing and will do these things that we command, that the Lord is faithful to bring about obedient acts in the lives of, of the church. But now it's a call for us to pray for one another according to this end. So let me just do another well check for a minute. I recognize that, that I'm going to kind of get in your, get in your business for a moment. When your small group prays, and one of the things I love about our congregation, another thing when people ask me, tell me about your church, right? Over 90% of the people in our congregation are a part of a small group. Our expectation actually is that 100% would be. Small groups is the primary means of disciple making in our church. If you're not in a small group, be in a small group. Go to our Connect desk. I don't care how long you've been coming here. Go to the Connect desk. We'll get you connected with a small group. You need people in your lives to talk about the scripture, to talk about what's happening in your life, and to help you in sanctification. You need that. I need that. We need that. We all need to be a part of of a group like this, right? So this is why we have small groups that meet in our church, both before service, after service, and throughout the week. Be a part of a small group. And one of the things our small groups do together faithfully, I believe, is pray. But every small group that I've ever been to, and I've sat in numerous small groups, and I'm a part of a small group, an off-campus small group ourselves, our family is. And when we pray together, when small groups pray together, we tend to pray for things that are urgent and important right then in that moment. And it is very often health concerns, it's job concerns, it's financial concerns. And I don't want to belittle these concerns at all. These are important things. These are things that God cares about. They're things that, you know, if, if the prayer is for your friends, cousins, aunts, brothers, sisters, you know, hairdressers, big toe, like probably not important. Okay. But most of the, we don't have a lot of that here. Most of the things we pray for, these are, these are important things, but I do believe we need to go a step further. We, we need to go a step further into actually praying for one of those sanctification, praying that you and I would become more like Jesus. Now, this is going to require a level of humility on our part that we're willing to say, here's the areas where I'm not like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I need you to pray for me in that. And I need to pray for you in the areas that you're not like Jesus. That we would, we would really be committed in, in a, in a, in a real way 
towards praying for the sanctification of one another. So let me ask you again, another well check, right? When was the last time, and let's just think about small groups for a minute, because most of you are in one. When was the last time you actually prayed for the Christ-likeness of the people in your small group? And I'm not talking about your small group leader voicing a prayer at the beginning or the end that, that adds on something about sanctification. When you, in your own personal prayer life, when was the last time that you prayed for brothers and sisters that you're directly connected to in this congregation, that they would do what Paul is saying here? That their hearts would be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Because this is what Paul's calling us to here. He's calling us to praying for one another in sanctification. And here's his definition of sanctification, at least here in this text. That our hearts would be directed to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You say, okay, well, what are those two things? Because when we take a step back and we think about what these two things are, here's what we're going to see. This is, this is us being called to greater Christian living. It's us being called to sanctification, putting off sin and putting on Jesus. So look at the first one. Direct your hearts towards the love of God. Now, there's some question here about what Paul means. I actually think, and I don't think this is always the right answer when there's a couple of different options. Normally, it's one or the other. I actually think it's both here. Because what Paul may be directing, he's saying, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. He may be saying to love God. That's one interpretation of the passage. Another interpretation of the passage is that he would, he's saying, may the Lord direct your hearts to love like God loves. So it's either our love for God or the love that we have that mirrors the love of God. I actually think it's both. And here's why I would think it's both. I think what Paul is, what Paul is reflecting here, right, is what Jesus has already said in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, there were some people questioning Jesus, Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the religious elite of the day, and they gather together. And one of them asks him a question to try to teach him. He says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And there were lots of commandments in the law, and they you weren't supposed to think one was better than the other. And Jesus says this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all the law and the prophets. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says we should first love God, right? That our heart's dedication, which is why he says, with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, with everything that you are, with your desires, with your, the way that you think, with, with the way that you structure your life, everything about you should be dedicated to loving God. So, when Paul says there, in verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to love God, I think he's saying exactly what Jesus said, is the great commandment to love God. But I don't think that's all he's saying because Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on to say that all of the law and the prophets depend on these two things. That they summarize everything in every command of the Old Testament can be summarized either in love God or the second is like it. Love others. Love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we go back to 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to love God, yes, but to also love like God. Listen, 
It's impossible to say you love God, but you hate people. To love God is to love people. This is why I think Paul means both of those things, because it's surely what Jesus meant in these, in the, in the great commandment, to love God and to love people. So part of our sanctification, a huge part of our sanctification, is both that we would love God and that we would structure our minds and our hearts and our souls, everything about us directed towards the love of God, but that also that flows out of that is our love for others. So as we, again, this is in the context of prayer, as we think about praying for one another, we should pray to this end. I should be praying for you. You should be praying for me. You should definitely be praying for the people in your small groups that our love for God would increase and that our love for people would increase. And you want to know where I think we have the biggest problem? Likely, it's in that second one. Let's just admit, sometimes that second one's pretty hard, isn't it? It's easy for us to say we love God. It's a whole other thing for us to say we love people. But our love for people is an outflow of our love for God. What that means is there are still things in our minds and our hearts and our souls that aren't situated towards loving God. So here's what we pray for one another. We pray that we together would love God all the more. And as we love God all the more, he will enable us to love what he loves, people. So that's the first. May the Lord God, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, to love God and to love like God. The second is that the Lord will direct your hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. Say, what is the steadfastness of Christ? The steadfastness of Christ is the example that Christ set for us in his commitment to the will of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter writes of this commitment. And he says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' death is the ultimate example of steadfastness. The one who did not deserve to die, died. Because it was God's will for the redemption of mankind that he would send his only son to die in our place so that we may have life. And Peter says, this leaves you an example that you might follow. So what should our prayers for one another be? Our prayers for one another would be that we would follow in the example of Jesus. That we would truly become more and more like Christ. And this is the beauty of prayers like this in small groups because small groups tend to spend time together and not only time together, but, but consecutive time together, weeks, months, years, decades. There are people in this room that are in small groups with the same people for decades. 
Imagine praying for the same people for months, years, and decades even for their steadfastness in Christ and being able to see it, being able to look back over a period of time and say, I see how you are more like Jesus now than you have ever been. And I hope you see that I am more like Jesus now than I am ever been because he is our example and in his footsteps do we follow. But let me just quickly here say something. Jesus didn't only die as an example. And so if you think for a moment, if you're lost in this is surely a message for saved people that we are joining in the mission of God, praying with confidence that he will do it. But I recognize that maybe you're here and you, you're just trying to put together some things of faith. You're seeking the Lord and you're not really sure what this is all about. Let me just be clear to you. Jesus dying is an example. He's an example to believers. But the primary truth of the death of Jesus is that he died in your place so that you might be saved. And there's no effort that you can make on your own to follow in that example until you've submitted yourself to the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit in your life who takes your dead heart and replaces it with something alive and new. So if you've never believed that today, believe that unto salvation recognizing that, yes, Jesus died in your place so that you might live. So what? Simple statement here, church. We must be a congregation committed to genuine prayer for one another. This must be our commitment. We can't just say we we value prayer. We must actually value prayer. We can't just say that we pray for one another and we pray in our small groups and we pray in our services and we we, we pray our, our, our prayer guides and we do these things. No, no, we need to be committed to it, recognizing that without it, we are nothing. In Ephesians chapter 6, in another letter of Paul, right towards the end of that book, he, he tells them about how they're going to accomplish the mission of God by putting on the whole armor of God. A couple of sermon series ago, we, we considered this, and there's sermons online about these armor, this armor of God. But he ends that section not by saying, okay, now you're dressed with the armor of God, go. He ends that section by saying, in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. So he's told him, put on all this armor, but also pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's prayer, for the saints and also for me, that words may be uh, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what the Apostle Paul saw. He saw that prayer was an essential component not only for the church, Supplication for the saints. But it was an essential part of his work as a missionary. Inviting them to pray for one another and inviting them to pray for his mission. Church family, we are invited along with the church of the ages to pray for what God is doing in one another's lives. And what God is doing in our collective life, in our congregation. Let us be a church that is dedicated to this type of prayer. Let us be driven to our knees in genuine prayer for one another, recognizing that without it, we are nothing. So let's pray now together. God.
would you show us our great need and the great effect that prayer has? Let us not take for granted that which brings us into communion with a holy and righteous God who holds the very universe in his hands, who has spoken the end from the beginning. Let us align our hearts and minds and will with yours, O God. Would this be a church? Would this be a congregation, a people, brothers and sisters, committed to fervent, effective prayer? For as you promise us in the book of James, the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. So would we, the people of God, pray? Would we pray, seeing its effect? in the lives of those around us, and in the ministries of our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.